Let's talk about a game-changing cryptocurrency called Ethereum. It allows you to create so many different things, it allows for so many different possibilities, and it's going to be the topic for the 22nd episode of What's Cooking. Put on your thinking cap, we have a lot to learn today. Here we go. you but this is what's cooking episode 22 shout out to t swift and shout out to everybody that's tuning in today great to have you back it's another wednesday it's another what's cooking episode we're gonna have another interesting topic to take you guys through today i did a episode a couple weeks ago on explaining bitcoin i think it's a very important episode if you haven't listened to this one Definitely recommend that you go check out the Bitcoin episode that I released because today we are talking about another cryptocurrency. We're going to be walking you guys through Ethereum. That's right. Another large cryptocurrency, another one of the most popular ones out there. It's very important and it's utilized in so many different ways. And I really think that it's important to explain the basics of Ethereum in case you guys don't know, because I have a big feeling that uh, we're going to all be using it at some point in the future. Might not be today, might not be tomorrow, might not be this year or next year, but Ethereum is going to be more and more relevant as time goes on in our lives. And why not learn about it now? Why not get ahead of the curve and just jumpstart the learning process? Because then you're going to be a step ahead of everybody else. And that's what we're all about here at What's Cooking. So today I'm going to be explaining the cryptocurrency called Ethereum at a basic level. Like I said, I think it really helps if you guys go back and listen to my Bitcoin episode, because not only did I take you through the fundamental concepts of Bitcoin in that episode, but I also went over some of the general properties of cryptocurrencies in general. So that will kind of provide you a great foundation as we go forward with this Ethereum episode. I'm going to approach this episode assuming you have some sort of basic knowledge of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Now, if you happen to be a crypto pro and you're just jumping in for this episode and you think that you already have the basics of Bitcoin and crypto down, then congrats. I I mean, I I can't tell you what to do. I'm not going to force you to go listen to anything else. You you enjoy the rest of this episode and see if uh see if what I'm saying lines up with your views on Ethereum. But uh, with that being said, let's go ahead and jump in. Ethereum is currently the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap. As we all know, Bitcoin is number one. One of the most significant differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that we actually know who created Ethereum. The creator of Bitcoin decided to remain anonymous under the name Satoshi Nakamoto. We don't know if it was one person that created Bitcoin. We don't know if that was a group of people and they kind of disappeared into the void. But when we're talking about Ethereum, we actually do know the creator. Ethereum was created by Vitalik Buterin, a Russian programmer who moved to Canada at an early age. And he has been a very smart person from a very young age. He's gotten into crypto so young and he's risen up the ranks faster than most other people in the field. His father was a computer scientist, so Vitalik definitely got started in the field early on. I think everyone would agree that what your parents do and what they're interested in definitely has a big effect on the things that you decide to take up as a child. I know in my case that's very true. I tend to take an interest in things that my parents are interested in, and I bet a lot of other people would agree with that. So having a father as a computer scientist who was somewhat involved in cryptocurrency as it was starting to kind of evolve gave Vitalik this uh, upbringing of computer knowledge and decentralized currencies and everything, so he was kind of born into the perfect situation for this kind of stuff. In 2011, 
Vitalik Buterin began writing for a publication called Bitcoin Weekly after meeting someone on a Bitcoin forum. And it's interesting that he started with Bitcoin because Ethereum is now like one of the main competitors towards Bitcoin. So uh, you kind of have this dynamic of Vitalik going and learning up all this stuff about Bitcoin and then deciding to kind of branch off from that. And you actually notice that quite a bit in the crypto industry. There's people that get their start in one crypto project and what they do is they kind of learn the field, learn the basics, get the knowledge down. And then what I'm guessing happens a lot of times is that when these guys who are big into crypto and working on the projects, they work with one crypto project for a certain amount of time, you get this knowledge and you get this understanding of the field. And then what you do is you start to look around and see what are the limitations of this crypto project I'm working on? Where are the downfalls? Where could I improve on this? And then if you're ambitious enough as a creator and as an entrepreneur, you could branch off of the crypto project you're working on and try to go create your own crypto and address some of the issues of the cryptocurrency you previously worked at. Since you know the ecosystem so well, since you know the environment, you would be able to kind of design uh, perhaps a competing project, which would do a much better job of succeeding in the areas where one other crypto project might fall short. And so that's what my guess is for Vitalik Buterin, deciding to learn up on Bitcoin and then go branch off and create Ethereum. Like I said, he wrote for Bitcoin Weekly. It was a publication. And this this company ended up getting shut down less than a year later. So Vitalik kind of had to scramble and find a new gig. He ended up joining a different publication called Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin Magazine was one of the first of its kind that was a magazine specific towards cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And I think it's actually still running to this day. So it didn't uh, kind of fall short like Bitcoin Weekly did. And after spending a year or two working for Bitcoin Magazine, Vitalik Buterin argued that Bitcoin needed a scripting language for application development. He was going around in the community, he was saying, guys, I really think that there's this area where Bitcoin falls short, and if we're able to add some sort of scripting language, programming language for application development in Bitcoin, I think this could really help. I think this would give new possibilities and allow us to branch off into different areas and kind of broaden our horizons. And he thought that that would be a great next step for Bitcoin. He proposed this idea to the Bitcoin community, but he failed to reach an agreement with everybody and it kind of fell through. And my best guess on why that happened is that Bitcoiners usually stay very true to Satoshi's vision. They think that the white paper for Bitcoin is a true work of art and it does not need to be altered and it does not need to be improved on with very few exceptions. Um, people in the Bitcoin community aren't really looking to branch out, I guess. They're not really looking to go off in different directions on what Satoshi had created. And they really think that it's important to stay true to its roots. And so when you have a young person rising up and saying, we should add this, we should change this, and they don't really haven't really made a name for themselves yet, it's really tough to kind of attach your plan to a young person and risk the original proposals set forth by the Bitcoin community and Satoshi Nakamoto. So um, that was definitely a big factor in my opinion. And that's why uh, Buterin was shut down and they did not go through with his ideas. So after he got rejected, Vitalik continued to work on his personal ideas, and he eventually published his own white paper in November of 2013. And this would be the white paper for Ethereum. So he, much like some other people in the crypto industry, like I mentioned earlier, 
learned up about crypto, learned up about Bitcoin by working for these publications, decided to kind of branch off on his own because he noticed some weaknesses. He noticed some areas where Bitcoin fell short and he wanted to branch off and improve on those ideas. And that's what he did. And so he published this white paper, kind of like uh, the original Bitcoin white paper. And it started to kind of pick up some steam in late 2013. And uh, he kind of uh, started making a name for himself, Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum. And it was a decentralized project, much like Bitcoin. And there's actually a really wild and funny and sad and interesting story as to why Vitalik Buterin is such a fan of decentralized systems. Get ready for this. Vitalik Buterin stated that he was driven to create decentralized money because his World of Warcraft character was nerfed, specifically by patch 3.1.0. And there's this quote by Vitalik Buterin that says, I happily played World of Warcraft during 2007 to 2010, but one day Blizzard removed the damage component from my beloved Warlock's Siphon Life Spell. I cried myself to sleep, and on that day I realized what horrors centralized services can bring. I soon decided to quit. <laughs> oh man, that's heartbreaking, man. Your Warlock Siphon Life Spell got nerfed, dude? <laughs> Although all the World of Warcraft players out there right now trying to convince me how how crazy important this is, I really don't know the significance of that. But yeah, he he was a big player of this game. He worked really hard to get that uh, spell. And Blizzard Gaming Company, Blizzard Activities, Blizzard Entertainment, I don't know the exact name, they are what's in control of World of Warcraft, and they are the entity that has sole control over this stuff so they decided one day we're going to nerf this certain spell that Vitalik had worked so hard for and the community had no say in the decision process it was a central authority that decided on their own and this obviously struck Vitalik's heart and he was very sad and disappointed and so Blizzard Entertainment really created and awoke the the monster within Vitalik Buren and he decided to go the decentralized route. He wanted to make sure that no one had to suffer like this ever again. So he quit playing the game and got into crypto and the rest is history. So that's kind of a, a interesting and funny way to get into the field, but yeah, apparently that's true. So like I said, Vitalik Buren published the white paper for Ethereum late 2013. The idea of Ethereum is gaining momentum as we go into 2014. Uh, people in the crypto community really start to understand and believe in this system. And uh, eventually, we come around to 2015, Ethereum gets officially launched onto the blockchain. So now that it's created, it's had its ICO, initial coin offering, people are able to use and interact with the Ethereum network. Now that it's officially up and running, let me give you what uh, Vitalik and Ethereum community officially describe as Ethereum. Ethereum is described as a decentralized mining network and software development platform rolled into one that facilitates the creation of new cryptocurrencies and programs that share a single blockchain. And with the creation of Ethereum, really broaden the horizon of what previously thought could be done in crypto. Um, it's really busted open the door and opened so many new possibilities. So there's a couple key differences here between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Both Bitcoin and Ethereum let you use digital money without payment providers or banks, so they do have that and similar. But where they differ, Ethereum is programmable so you can also build and deploy decentralized applications on its network. That's huge. That is huge. If you're able to program something, you're able to deploy applications on the network. It's like, think of an iPhone without the App Store. 
everything you can do on an iPhone without the App Store, just by itself. You can call, you can text, you can have contacts, you can have the Notes app, you can have your calendar, everything the iPhone provides. That's what the crypto community was sort of like before Ethereum came along. And then Ethereum, you have your iPhone. Ethereum is somewhat similar to the App Store on the iPhone. It it really changes the game. It, it brings so many new possibilities. People can create their own apps. You can use apps. And if iPhone didn't have an app store, it probably wouldn't survive in the, uh, the phone market today. So the fact that Ethereum is offering these new possibilities, Ethereum is letting people program their own works and projects, it's really a, a transformative technology. So that's why it's so important. And I'm dedicating this own episode towards Ethereum. Ethereum is a general-purpose blockchain that can be programmed to do anything. When people started to realize this and how, how much of a game-changer Ethereum was, it started to rise up the ranks, it started to get adopted by the masses, and eventually made its way up to the second-largest market cap, and that's where it sits today, right behind Bitcoin in number two. So Ethereum is a huge player in the crypto industry, and I think it will continue to be for a long time to come. Before we get too far into this episode with Ethereum, I think it's important that we explain the different ways in which we refer to this project, because there are a couple different ways that you can refer to Ethereum, and I want to make sure that we're on the same page here. So the first way is just saying Ethereum, which I have been saying this whole time. When you say Ethereum, you're referring to the blockchain network, and the environment of Ethereum. But then there's also Ether. And Ether is often abbreviated to just ETH or ETH. When you say Ether or ETH, you, what you're referring to is the cryptocurrency that operates in this environment. So Ethereum, once again, the blockchain network, the environment, the ecosystem, if you will, and then Ether which is the cryptocurrency that operates in this environment. Ethereum supports a range of applications, whereas Ether is the token that fuels all the transactions within these applications. Hopefully that makes sense to you guys. If not, go ahead and uh, back up the episode and give it another listen. Maybe that'll click the second or third time. But at this point, I'm going to assume that you understand that concept and we're going to keep on rolling because we still have four other Ethereum-related topics that I want to get through, so we got to uh, keep the train moving. This next section is going to be about gas. What does gas mean in terms of the Ethereum network? Every time you transact on an Ethereum-based application through your Ethereum crypto wallet, you need to pay a fee, which is called gas, and you pay this in ETH. Gas is essential to the Ethereum network. It is the fuel that allows it to operate in the same way that a car needs gasoline to run. Or if you're driving a Tesla, it would be electricity. Gas refers to the unit that measures the amount of computational effort required to execute specific operations on the Ethereum network. So how hard are you making the ETH network work when you're doing your computations? That's going to be measured in the form of a gas fee. Since each Ethereum transaction requires computational resources to execute, each transaction is going to then require a fee. Gas refers to the fee required to conduct a transaction on Ethereum successfully. Like we already said, gas fees are paid in the native currency Ether. So it's not like you have to pay USD on top of what you're doing. It's all in the same currency of ether. However, what you might see sometimes is that gas fees are often denoted in GUE. That's spelled G-W-E-I, pronounced GUE, which itself is a denomination of ETH. Each GUE is equal to 0.000, and it goes on for about eight zeros, and then a one at the end, ETH. 
So it's kind of like dollars and cents, except guay is the cent form of ETH being the dollar. So a guay is a very, very small portion of an ETH. For example, instead of saying that your gas fee cost 0.0000001 ether, you can just say that in terms of guay. That's going to save you a lot of time. It's going to save you the time and effort of saying zero a bunch of times, which gets annoying pretty quickly. So guay, similar to the cents for the US dollars, that's going to be their type of uh, denomination. And I think in terms of Bitcoin, you have one Bitcoin and then you have sat or also called satoshis. And a satoshi is like 0, 0.000 with seven zeros and then a one at the end, Bitcoin. So similar system there. It's just a smaller unit to prevent us from saying all these zeros. So hopefully you guys understand the gas section of Ethereum. It's a kind of unique and that Bitcoin doesn't really have um, this structure of fees, but Ethereum network right now does have these gas fees. Some people complain that it's pretty enormous on certain Ethereum transactions and they're getting a little ridiculous and they need to bring it down significantly to improve the longevity of Ethereum project. I think that there's going to be a future upgrade to address um, gas fees for Ethereum. Some people thought that this was going to be taken care of this year, but that was actually a misconception. It's not going to be handled for still some time. So people are aware, the developers are aware that gas fees are a little bit annoying and they are working the best they can to try to reduce these fees for you. Another important Ethereum topic we got to talk about, guys, smart contracts. This is one of the staples of Ethereum. This is one of the main components of what Ethereum is all about. Smart contracts are the fundamental building blocks of Ethereum applications. They are computer programs stored on the blockchain that allow converting traditional contracts into digital parallels. These smart contracts are very logical. They follow an if this, then that structure. And what this means is that they behave exactly as programmed and they cannot be changed. And if you're wondering smart contracts, well, what is a contract? Contract just means it's an agreement. That is any form of agreement that can be encapsulated within the conditions of a contract. Sometimes you might think of it as a sports player signing a contract with the team. That's just an agreement that uh, one side is going to hold up their end of the deal and the other side is going to provide their end of the deal. And that's an agreement that they reach. And one of the biggest problems with these traditional contracts is the need for trusted individuals to follow through with the contract's outcomes. For example, I'll give you this. Imagine it's 2011 and the NBA Finals are on, and I'm very confident in my Dallas Mavericks, led by Dirk Nowitzki, to take down the Miami Heat in the 2011 NBA Finals. So I get my friend who's a Heat fan and I get to say, hey, let's make a contract. If the Mavericks win, you're going to give me 500 bucks. If the Heat win, I will give you 500 bucks. And we shake hands, we agree on the contract verbally, and whatever happens, happens. Turns out in 2011, the Dallas Mavericks won the NBA Finals, so then I come knocking on my friend's door. I say, hey, remember that contract we agreed to? 500 bucks, where is it? And then my friend starts making excuses. Oh, I didn't know that the Mavs were going to be that good. I thought we could just steamroll them. Oh, LeBron only scored eight points in one game, got clamped by J.J. Barea. I don't know, That's this is dumb, I don't want to pay. And he closes the door and he refuses to pay. This is a great example of some of the downfalls of traditional contracts. If the other person is not trustable, if they're not dependable on their end of the deal, they can kind of escape without holding up their end of the contract. And that's very frustrating. And breaking the terms of the agreement is never something you want to do. So how do smart contracts address this? Well, smart contracts digitize agreements by turning the terms of an agreement into computer code that automatically executes when the contract terms are met. 
So you and your friend at the beginning of this bet would both put this into code. You would offer up your 500 bucks and the contract, the smart contract, would then get this external data brought in about the NBA finals. And once the code understands which outcome was reached, it would automatically send the money to the correct person. So there's no need to have the other trusted individual have to hold up their end of the bargain. Smart contracts will take care of that themselves and everyone goes home happy except the person that lost, of course. And another real world example of a smart contract happening is if you were to use a vending machine. If you think about a vending machine, it's a machine that lets you choose different options. Maybe you're looking for a drink, maybe you're looking for a snack. You press the button of the food or drink that you want and it'll tell you what the price is. So you enter in the dollar amount that you're paying for. That's your end of the bargain, that's your end of the contract. And you press the button of what you want and once the machine is able to detect that you've entered the money and detect that you've pressed a certain button, it will then automatically hold up its end of the contract and dispense the food or drink that you selected automatically. And there's no haggling, there's no escaping the terms of the deal. It's just automatically executes and you're on your way. So I think it's pretty easy to see how smart contracts can be beneficial. I think they're going to be big in sports eventually. Um, player contracts could be signed using uh, this Ethereum type of smart contract approach where if, a let's say, you have a defensive end in the NFL, the right when they get a certain amount of sacks, let's say they have a little incentive in their contract, if you get 10 sacks this season, we're going to give you an extra million dollars. The code of this smart contract would be able to access the internet and get the data from NFL. And once it sees that you've hit that 10th sack as the defensive end, it will automatically execute. The money will be sent to your preferred location and both parties uh, hold up their end of the deal without having to manually do the work. So it's kind of a no-brainer in my opinion. Smart contracts, so many benefits and saves a lot of time in arguing. So I think these will be huge in the future, and I can't wait to see how soon and how widely they get adopted. Next, we got to talk about a hot topic in the crypto world. Some people hate them. Some people collect them. That's right. We got to bring them up. NFTs. Ethereum makes it possible for NFTs to work for a number of reasons. Transaction history and token metadata is publicly verifiable. It's very simple to prove ownership history because Ethereum blockchain keeps track of these transactions. So NFTs, you can see the history of who's owned it. You can see the history of the sale prices and everything thanks to the Ethereum network. Once a transaction is confirmed, it's nearly impossible to manipulate that data, to steal ownership. Once again, this is a big uh, selling point for blockchain technology. These transactions are immutable. They are not able to be edited after the fact. So that's very important in the NFT marketplace because you don't want someone to sell you an NFT and then cancel the sale and you gave them the money and they still have it. That would be a disaster. Trading NFTs can happen peer-to-peer without needing platforms that can take large cuts as compensation. That's a big advantage of decentralization. These centralized platforms that often take a tax or a cut out of these sales doesn't have to happen with blockchain technology, Ethereum network. You're not going to see that nearly as often. So got to love Ethereum and all the opportunities it provides. The whole NFT ecosystem works because Ethereum is decentralized and secure. And when I say decentralized, I mean that you and everyone else can verify that you own something, all without trusting or granting custody to a third party who can impose their own rules at will. And this also means that your NFT is portable across many different products and markets. 
And then I said decentralized and I just described it. Now, how about secure? The NFT ecosystem works because Ethereum is secure, meaning no one can copy and paste your NFT or steal it. I know there's an ongoing joke on Twitter and social media that uh, you can just screenshot someone's NFT and set it as your profile picture. And then you tweet it out and you say, hmm, looks pretty fungible to me. <laughs> yes, you can screenshot it and set it as your profile picture. That doesn't mean you own it though. So the, the real attraction to NFTs is the ownership via the blockchain that can verify that. Yes, you can screenshot it. You can rip it off if you want. But at the end of the day, you're not the owner and it's just it's not the same significance so if you want to go make that joke then uh be my guest but the ownership is really what makes nfts significant i'm not going to go too deep into nfts today i think that could be an entirely other episode also i do not have a extensive knowledge on nfts and i think other people out there could probably describe it better than I could. I can definitely give it a shot sometime if you guys are interested in that. But uh, this is a strictly Ethereum episode, and I, I'm only going to discuss the parts of NFTs that relate to Ethereum. So if you want me to dive deeper into NFTs someday, I'd be happy to do some research and come up with an episode. But for today, that's going to be the extent of my NFT explanations. Let's talk about the merge. What is the merge? Well, the Ethereum network, before I describe the merge, I gotta say, the Ethereum network began by using a consensus mechanism that involved proof of work. If you guys listen to my Bitcoin episode, you know a little bit about proof of work. This allows the nodes of the Ethereum network to agree on the state of all information recorded on the Ethereum blockchain and prevent certain kinds of economic attacks. Proof of work is the one that deals with mining and people having computers solving these complex algorithms that verify transactions. So proof of work, like I just said, underlying algorithm that sets the difficulty and rules for the work miners do on proof of work blockchains. Mining is the work itself. It's the act of adding valid blocks to the chain. So Ethereum started out with this consensus mechanism proof of work. When Ethereum was created 2015, that's what it had. It had proof of work all the way up until this year, actually. It was proof of work for seven years. And then we had this thing called the merge. Dun, dun, dun. The merge was executed on September 15th, 2022. That's just, what is it? September's the ninth month. We're in December, the 12th month. So three months ago, guys, just three months ago, the merge took place. This is big. And we had this historic crypto event taking place. And you might not have even known if you're not a big crypto person. So, wow, you got you to gotta be aware of what's going on around you. I certainly was aware of the merge, but that's probably because I'm a big crypto guy. So for those of you that aren't aware, the merge completed Ethereum's transition from the proof of work consensus mechanism to the proof-of-stake consensus mechanism, officially deprecating proof-of-work and reducing energy consumption by roughly 99.95%. That's a lot of energy saved. Ethereum uses proof-of-stake these days, now that the merge has been completed, where validators explicitly stake capital in the form of ETH into a smart contract on Ethereum. This staked ETH then acts as collateral that can be destroyed if the validator behaves dishonestly or lazily. The validator is then responsible for checking that new blocks propagated over the network are valid and occasionally creating and propagating new blocks themselves. Guys, we just had a crossover of terms that I've described for you. Proof of stake and smart contracts work hand in hand because in order to stake your Ethereum, you need to agree to this smart contract and that will set the terms and conditions for which each end of the contract will uphold. So you're going to commit the minimum required amount of 32 ETH 
to stake that to the network. And if you don't hold up your end of the deal, then it will be destroyed. And if you do end up hold up your end of the deal, then you will be rewarded with a small Ethereum payout. So that's kind of the incentive for people to stake their ETH in order to earn more. And that will help the network validate these transactions. So Ethereum, proof of stake, smart contracts, all intertwined. And they are all part of this important mechanism and ecosystem. Proof of stake comes with a number of improvements to the now deprecated proof of work system. First of all, it's better at energy efficiency, like I said. This is going to greatly reduce the amount of energy being used to secure transactions from the proof of work system. No longer do you need huge rigs of computers mining away to ver verify these uh, blockchain transactions. Now, Ethereum is going to have lower barriers to entry, reduced hardware requirements. Because, you know, proof of work, if you want to really make a dent, if you really want to uh, get any significant amount of reward for mining Ethereum or Bitcoin, you're going to need some sizable equipment. You're going to need uh, some powerful hardware. So by changing to proof of stake, Ethereum has lowered the barrier of entry and you no longer have to get a beefy setup. So that kind of uh, goes further to encourage people to uh, stake their Ethereum and participate in this network. And then third, there's a reduced centralization risk. Proof of stake should lead to more nodes securing the network. However, I got this information off of ethereum.org, so they're definitely biased in saying that. I think I've heard other people say that the merge to proof-of-stake actually might make Ethereum slightly more centralized than it was before. I think I don't exactly remember the reason for that, but there has been some sort of change in the level of centralization of Ethereum over the years, so... I would encourage you to do your own research, not only from ethereum.org, but from outside sources, so you can compare and contrast uh, those places of information and come to your own conclusion on that. But just be aware that Ethereum, although it is a cryptocurrency, although it is decentralized, I don't think it is as decentralized as Bitcoin. I don't think you're going to find crypto out there that is as decentralized as Bitcoin. It is one of the most, if not the most, decentralized cryptocurrency, even down to the point where we have no clue who invented it. So keep that in mind. Guys, that was a lot of information to take in. Hopefully you stuck around. Hopefully you finished the episode like a champ, and now you are going to be able to have a much more expansive knowledge on the ecosystem, on the project, on the environment of Ethereum, the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap in all of the crypto market. Mr. Vitalik Buterin, the whiz, the computer genius that created this project, he is pretty active on social media. He's pretty active um, on the internet. And Ethereum as a project is a lot more adaptable. You're going to see a lot more Ethereum updates and changes than you will to Bitcoin. That's just part of the nature of the crypto. I think Vitalik Buterin continues to work and develop and innovate. And that's that could be the defining factor as to whether you decide to invest in Ethereum or Bitcoin. If you're interested in a known creator who is continuously working on this project and looking to improve upon its shortcomings, maybe Ethereum's the way to go. If you're looking for a true store of value and a purely decentralized asset, then maybe Bitcoin is the way for you. Full disclosure here, I do own both Bitcoin and Ethereum. I'm a believer in both of these guys, the number one and the number two crypto by market cap. These are the two heavy hitters, the two top dogs in the industry. 
I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are the clear-cut leaders in the crypto space right now. And I think the gap between second and third is enormous. I couldn't name you the third most trusted cryptocurrency or the third most relevant. At any given time, it might fluctuate. And I really think that my time and money is best spent on the top two assets in the crypto market. That's why I decide to invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I don't really stray away from that path. I don't really dive into many altcoins. I think that the further you go down the list, the more risky and gambly you're getting. So just uh, keep in mind, that's what I do. It might not be the path for you. This is not financial advice. I don't claim to be someone who is trying to convince you one way or the other. I just want to present you with this information and help you form your own decisions. So there you have it, Ethereum. Hopefully I explained that pretty well. You're always welcome to rewind and take another listen. You're always welcome to compare the information I've shared with other sources of information. There's a ton of YouTube videos out there you guys can watch. Also, a lot of the information presented in today's episode was obtained by the website ethereum.org. They do have an extensive library of topics for you to research and learn about Ethereum. So if you're more of a text type of learner, you might be better off heading to that ethereum.org website. But I would also encourage you to compare with outside sources, compare with other places of information. But I think my job here is done. So glad you guys were able to listen and get some value out of that. Ethereum, very important, going to be popular in the future, going to be relevant in our lives one way or another. And you know what else is going to be relevant? The information that I'm about to share. When we go over and see what is cooking in each of the four categories. What's cooking in sports? You already know we're starting with Iowa football. Unfortunately, it's not very uh, good. But it's Iowa football news nonetheless. Five-star offensive tackle who was committed to Iowa, Caden Proctor, has now changed his mind and decided to decommit from Iowa and rather commit to Alabama. Tough break for the Hawks. But when Alabama calls, when Nick Saban comes knocking on your door, there's not a lot of college players, there's not a lot of high school recruits that are going to turn that down. So Alabama over the last 10 to 15 years, probably the number one program in proven success, winning year after year. If there's anyone that's going to steal a recruit from Iowa, it's going to be Alabama. So that's tough. Not a whole lot you can do if you're the Hawks. Just got to wish him the best of luck and hope we see him in the playoff when it expands. And hopefully we can take down Alabama And maybe Proctor will realize what he's missing out on. (laughs) I don't care. He's going to be a great player wherever he goes. And it turns out it'll be Alabama. So hopefully he will enjoy his time there. And the Hawks will have to find another tackle. There are more players in the NCAA that are opting out of bowl games. I told you guys the last couple weeks how this kind of frustrates me. I'm a big uh, fan of finishing the season. Finishing out the the goal that you started at the beginning of the year was to play the entire season and I think it would help if you finish what you started but I'm not a college football player. I'm not in that position so I can't really blame them for doing that. If you have a legitimate chance at getting drafted to an NFL team I can't really blame you for taking that seriously and committing all of your time towards that. So life-changing money, life-changing opportunity, and that's what they're deciding to do. So more power to you. You go ahead and do that. Iowa will have to take a look at uh, some guys further down the depth chart. And not only Iowa, there's a lot of teams that are having this issue. Um, So, hey, next man up. New opportunities for new players. 
and maybe something good will come out of this. In the NFL, this has been one of the most crazy NFL weekends of the year. Starting off with the largest comeback in NFL history. I was eating lunch at Tin Roost in North Liberty. I was eating my uh, tenderloin and potatoes and gravy and uh, happened to peek up at the TV. Noticed that the Vikings were down 17 nothing early. I said, my goodness, boys, the Colts are beating the Vikings that bad? I didn't think they had it in them, but good job for the Colts. Looks like they're going to take this one. And then I continue eating. I look back later on. Good Lord, 33 nothing at half? Oh, Vikings are falling apart. Maybe what everyone said is true. Maybe they really are uh, not up to standard. They have a Mickey Mouse record. They only win close games based off of fluky outcomes. And then the second half happened. And slowly but surely, the Vikings come marching back. They get a touchdown here, a touchdown there, and they start playing some defense. And I will admit here, I will say, the Vikings absolutely got screwed over on two different occasions in this game, and they still found a way to win. The refs got a little whistle happy on some certain plays. They got a little blow the play dead before it actually finishes happy. And there were two clear moments where the Vikings defense had takeaways or touchdowns and the refs blew it dead before that actually happened so not only did the Vikings come back from down 33 but they overcame some poor officiating and Matt Ryan I hate to say it man but you're on the wrong end of a the one of the largest or excuse me the largest Super Bowl comeback of all time and now the largest NFL comeback of all time. Tough day for the Colts, tough day for Matt Ryan. The Vikings are resilient, and they can just find a way to get the job done, so you have to respect it. NFC North champs, shout out. Chargers are playing the Titans. This was a low-scoring game for Chargers standards. End up winning on a last-second field goal. Cameron Dicker, a.k.a. Dicker the Kicker, Sealing the deal in the closing seconds. My man has been so clutch this year. He's our third string kicker, and he's got the starting job for right now. You have to assume that Dustin Hopkins will reclaim it once he's healthy, but Dicker uh, is earning himself a a job in the future, I think, uh, some other team. So love to see that. Not exactly the best statistical day for Herbert, but he was there when we needed him. He made so many clutch plays, including that last drive where he's running out of the pocket, looking downfield, slinging that thing on a frozen rope, and Mike Williams goes up and jumps and grabs it on the sideline, hustle up to the line of scrimmage, spike it, and set up the kicker to seal it off. So, Also, let me mention this. Chargers this weekend, we needed the Titans to lose. That would help us. We needed the Jets to lose, that would help us. We needed the Patriots to lose, that would help us. And we needed the Dolphins to lose, that would help us. Every single one of those outcomes happened. Therefore, the Chargers, now at 8-6, and six, we take the sixth seed in the AFC. If the season ended today, the Bolts are in the playoffs. Love to see that, especially considering all the injuries that we've gone through. And now, even recently, we've seen J.C. Jackson uh, spending some time in jail for a family matter. That's not good. That breaks the Chargers' streak, the longest streak in the NFL, six consecutive years with no players arrested. J.C. Jackson, what are you doing, my man? He had a bad injury, and he had a bad performance on the field this year, and now he's having a bad performance off the field, so... Tough year to be J.C. Jackson. Hopefully he can figure out what's going on and uh, get back to his usual self. I was at an Iowa men's basketball game last weekend. It was against Southeast Missouri State. We did not have Chris Murray. However, that was no problem for the Hawks. 
We easily took care of business, winning by over 30 points. No Chris Murray, no problem for the Hawks. We'll listen to this little scoring lineup here. Philip Rebracha put in 30 points for the Hawkeyes, a 30-burger. Peyton Sanford scored 24 points. Patrick McCaffrey scored 20 points. Those three guys combined for 74 points. The entire Southeast Missouri State team scored 75 points. That's insane. Three players come within one point of the entire other team. That's when you know you have a three-headed monster. And we don't even have the main head of our monster. So you love to see that as an Iowa fan. Uh, Philip Bracha had a really cool play where he was in the post and faked a pass underneath some guy's arm had him turning around, looking the wrong way, and then went up for the easy bucket. So we're just toying with these guys at this point. And I was having a great time at Carver, and I think I will be back there soon to see the Hawks once again. Hopefully we can make a run this year, maybe back-to-back Big Ten champs, who knows. Make some noise in the tournament, actually win a few games in the tournament this year, that would be cool. But you got to like what you're seeing right now from the Iowa basketball team. World Cup soccer has come to a conclusion. Go Argentina, go, go Argentina. Argentina wins the World Cup. You love to see Messi get the job done with the boys. That was uh, the missing link, the missing trophy in his trophy case. Messi now has the, the big one, the World Cup, and... It was one of the best soccer games I've ever watched live. It was action-packed. It was dramatic. And it went into penalty shootout at the end. So many great things in this match. Messi had a PK to start things off. And then Argentina had another cool play where they got it forward to one guy. It was like a two-on-one sort of situation. And... This guy made a super accurate pass for, um, <laughs> I don't even, I'm just saying this guy and this guy. So this one dude had a, a really good pass to this other dude. If it's not Messi, I'm not going to know your name. I'm sorry, Argentina. So dude one has a really good pass to dude two. And dude two, like, kicked the ball downward into the ground somehow, and it bounced over the keeper's arm and went into the goal. Like, the amount of precision that you have to have to do that stuff. I would easily biff that and trip over the ball and land on my face if I tried to do that. And these guys just take it one touch like it's nothing in the World Cup final. So, early 2-0 lead for Argentina. And then Kylian Mbappe had other ideas. My man started going off. He scored on a PK. He scored on a regular goal. And he scored on another goal in regulation to knot it up at 3-3. We go into extra time. I don't believe there were any goals in extra time. I believe it just stayed at 3-3. And then we go to the penalties, boys. And Messi is the first one to start off for Argentina. He kicks it slowly, but he gets it. Like, just the mind games that you have to have when you're going up for a PK. Messi just knows. He knows what to do. He knows where the keeper's going, and he found a way to get that ball on the back of the net. A couple guys from France missed, and Argentina ends up sealing the deal. 4-2, I believe, in the penalty shootout, and Argentina going crazy in the celebration. Their parade was insane. The, The outpouring of support for Messi was enormous, and it was a cool World Cup to watch. You gotta love what you're seeing there. What's cooking in finance? Congress is on the verge of passing a bill that aims to help Americans save more for retirement and leave their retirement savings untouched and untaxed for longer. The bill nearing approval raises the age people are required to start withdrawing money from tax-deferred retirement accounts up to 75 when it was previously at 72. 
This increases retirement savings contribution limits for older workers and provides an increased incentive to people with low and moderate incomes to save in retirement accounts. It also paves the way for more employers to offer emergency savings accounts inside 401k plans. Congress, which published the final details of the bill on Tuesday, is expected to pass the measure in the next few days as part of a larger year-end spending bill. President Biden is expected to get it signed soon after. So previously, guys, you were forced to withdraw from your tax-deferred retirement accounts at age 72 because the government wants you to kind of uh, start realizing those gains, start getting taxed upon withdrawing from these accounts. If this passes, it would be bumped back three years, which means more growth, less taxes, and all-around good times, it sounds like. I'm a fan of more growth. I'm a fan of the government not forcing us to withdraw. So if this passes, I think it would be beneficial to the American people, the people who plan on retirement and financially prepare themselves. As always, time in the market is greater than timing the market. That's one of my main philosophies, and that's what this plan is going to help us do. There's also, in the world of finance, a billionaire mortgage lender named Matt Ishiba. This man just finalized a purchase of the Phoenix Suns. A little crossover here from finance and sports. He purchased the Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Mercury for a record price of $4 billion. The Suns' record sale marks a new day in the escalating valuations of NBA teams. Joe Tsai bought the Brooklyn Nets for an NBA record $2.35 billion in 2019. And prior to that sale, Tillman Fertitta purchased the Houston Rockets for $2.2 billion in 2017. And then you also had Steve Ballmer, who bought the LA Clippers for $2 billion in 2014. So the values of these franchises continue to rise. And if you want to own a franchise someday in one of these major sports leagues, you better be saving up the cash because $4 billion is now the most recent sale for the NBA. NFL teams have also had ridiculous team valuations. Sometimes you'll see these uh, ownership groups kind of go together and pool their money to get, on, get in on this uh, type of ownership. But uh, sounds like Matt Ishiba, who was a former Michigan State basketball player, is going to be leading the charge on this purchase. There might be a few people um, coming along with him in some supporting roles, but he is the lead dog purchasing the Phoenix Suns. Although, I did see a meme on Twitter that isn't actually a meme, it's actually a fact. I thought the Phoenix Suns already had an owner. That owner is Luka Doncic and the Dallas Mavericks. Because if you recall a certain uh, Western Conference semifinals, Game 7, Luka Doncic went ahead and destroyed the entire city of Phoenix, the organization, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, and company. And he hit that step-back three at the end of the first half, and people were going crazy. And the Mavs blew the Suns out of the water on their way to a Western Conference Finals appearance. And that also created another meme, which is Chris Paul hits a three to cut the lead down to 42. <laughs> oh, man. Gotta love the Mavericks owning the Suns every year. And Luka will, whether or not Matt Ishiba purchases the Suns for $4 billion, everyone knows that the true owner of the Suns, at the end of the day, is Luka Doncic. What's cooking in technology? I don't know who comes up with this stuff. I don't know if this is officially agreed upon or if this is just one article saying this. But supposedly, the technology of the year for 2022 has been decided that would be generative AI. Generative AI is a branch of artificial intelligence that enables computers to quickly and convincingly create original content, 
ranging from images and artwork to poetry, music, text, video, dialogue, and even computer code. Over the last 12 months, one category of technology has made headlines so often and has impacted society so significantly. There is no question that 2022 will be remembered as the year that generative AI stunned the world. From artwork and poetry to essays and computer code, generative AI is disrupting multiple industries. Though impressive, generative AI is not flawless. Since it is programmed using massive sets of human documents, the output can be biased or sometimes flat-out wrong. If you guys are an OG What's Cooking listener, you might remember an episode early on in the days when I brought on my brother Dylan. He talked about potential improvements to Madden, the Madden video game franchise. One of those, he mentioned a AI program called Dolly 2. And I think this is similar to that. I think generative AI and Dolly 2 are the same type of idea. I think Dolly 2 might use generative AI or it is considered actually generative AI. It lets you type in a description and then the AI will create that image that you typed up just based on its own knowledge. So that's uh, astounding. That's impressive. And I think that could be very useful in various outputs in various situations. But it also presents uh, some potential for interesting and uh, unwanted outcomes. So it's going to have to be monitored. It's going to have to be continuously improved upon. But generative AI taking the crown as the technology of the year for 2022. You might not use it in your everyday life or you might not use it in your life. (laughs) But just know that it's very important. It's very useful. And I think if the current trends continue, then this will continue to grow and be used at scale. What's cooking in video games? Microsoft Corporation planned on acquiring Activision Blizzard for $68.7 billion. However, it hit another hurdle on Tuesday when a group of gamers challenged the deal in court. The federal antitrust lawsuit that was filed in San Francisco comes less than two weeks after the Federal Trade Commission sued to block the merger between one of the world's top video game publishers and the manufacturer of the Xbox console. The new suit names Microsoft, but not Activision, as a defendant. Guys, if you're Microsoft and you own the Xbox... It's going to be a conflict of interest in the gaming community if you buy out Activision Blizzard because uh, you're about to find out how that could get a little messy. Like the FTC, these gamers are seeking a court order prohibiting the companies from going through with the transaction. Their complaint cites concerns that the merger would give Microsoft enough clout over multiple levels of the gaming industry to foreclose rivals, limit output, reduce customer choice, raise prices, and further inhibit competition. I'm surprised they use the word clout in that situation. Uh, Is this article written by a TikTok user? Uh, It might be. Microsoft already controls one of the industry's most popular and largest video game ecosystems, the suit says. The proposed acquisition would give Microsoft an unrivaled position in the gaming industry leaving it with the greatest number of must-have games and iconic franchises. So, at the end of the day, we need competition because that's how people will be driven to improve. So, if we allow this Microsoft transaction to go through where they acquire Activision Blizzard, Activision Blizzard is going to probably make some of their games exclusive to the Xbox, which means PlayStation and other consoles are not going to have any sort of access to that. They're not going to be able to sell that. And Microsoft could then crank up their prices because they know nobody else is able to offer this but us. So we're going to make you pay even more for it because no one else is going to even 
offer that. Like they, they can't compete. That's why we need competition in the market. I am a fan of having a free and open marketplace. I think competition brings out the best in us. I think it lowers prices and it forces these companies to find an edge, find a way to convince people to buy theirs rather than the competitors. So this is a big move for the open marketplace. I definitely agree with preventing this if possible. Gaming industries seem to have this problem come up every now and then. We're seeing it with Madden right now for sure. The official NFL license is not given out to any other company except for EA Sports, and which that means Madden does not have any direct competitors, and their product has suffered over the last 10 years. So I like competition. I like having choices, and the free marketplace will decide who will survive and who will not. Let the best man win, and if you're not the best man, you got to get better. Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. We talked about Ethereum. It is a very relevant technology. It is a huge player in the crypto space. I think so many people are going to find things that they can improve with the use of Ethereum. That's why it was important enough to get its own episode on this What's Cooking podcast. What's underscore cooking on Twitter? What's underscore cooking on Instagram? Hit up the Facebook page. Hit up the YouTube. And we will see you guys next Wednesday. I've heard some rumblings about a guest appearance. Could be next week. Could be the week after. I got some friends coming back from other locations. Back to the hometown. We might try to crank out some episodes here in the next week or so. The conversations that we could have with some of these guys that I'm about to bring on could take this podcast to new heights, let me just tell you. They are some characters. They are entertaining. They are wild. They are interesting people. And that's what we're all about on the What's Cooking podcast, having interesting conversations with different people, finding different points of views, discussing ideas, going back over memories, and just having a good time. And I hope you guys had a good time listening to What's Cooking episode 22 because it's now come to an end. We will see you guys next Wednesday. Have a good one. See you.